Welcome back to the program. For decades, it seems, we read and watched stories about suicide bombers in the Middle East. We processed the information without emotion, as we do many news stories. Then 9-11 happened, and suddenly suicide bombers took on a new meaning for most Americans. With that new understanding, award-winning journalist Mike Kelly looks back at a story at a suicide bombing in Israel that took place in 1996, years before 9-11. The story fraught with humanity, the frustration of loss would have, if we knew better then, presaged so much of what's happened since in Israel, in Palestine, and in America. Mike Kelly is the author of two previous books and many prize-winning projects and columns for the Bergen Record in New Jersey. It is my pleasure to welcome Mike Kelly here to talk about The Bus on Jaffa Road, a story of Middle East terrorism and the search for justice. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. Why this story? Why go back to 1996 and tell this story of Sarah Ducker and Matthew Eisenfeld? It's interesting you mentioned the uh, in your introduction, you mentioned the, no, the 9-11 attacks. You know, I covered those attacks mm-hmm. on the morning of 9-11. I'm a, I'm a newspaper columnist here in northern New Jersey, and I, I went down to the Hudson River on the Jersey side and jumped on a tugboat and crossed the river and spent three days uh, at what we now have come to call Ground Zero, and um, continued to follow the story in the ensuing months and years, actually. I, I followed the story to Malaysia. I followed the story to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to Iraq, to the Middle East, Israel, Gaza Strip, and the West Bank. And I felt, and I also covered the 9-11 Commission hearings and the ensuing congressional uh, legislation to revamp our intelligence services. And I felt I just wasn't getting deep enough. I felt I was missing a crucial element, and that was uh, what happens to the victims afterwards. And that's when I turned to this story, and I decided to take one terrorist attack and, and, and just trace what happens in the aftermath, particularly what happens to the families who lost people. And talk about the nexus between, for you, of going back and looking at this story, looking at it from the point of view of the victims, the the broader political implications, both in the Middle East and in the U.S., and the context that that provided for you as you imagined what happened and looked at what happened after, up to and including 9-11. Well, the the context to me was, was extraordinarily interesting, and there was a number of links to all of this. I mean, uh, first of all, the, the, the theology, the, the, uh, the radicalized Islamic theology that was really behind the 9-11 attacks were really present to in many of these other suicide bombings which took place in Israel, West Bank, and other par- parts of the Middle East. And this belief that you can, uh, you can attain a place as a martyr if you kill yourself and you kill other innocent people. It really turns the whole definition of martyrdom on its head as we know it in the Western world, and it's really something that I don't think we have really fully confronted as a nation uh, yet, and, and, and the danger of that, nor, has I, nor do I believe has the Muslim world confronted this danger, because most mainstream Muslims will tell you that this is a perverted and kind of a wrong-headed theology. So that's one thing. But the other, the other element of this uh, that I think was, was a connection was the fact that every victim of terror, I, th- I think, tries to answer or tries to confront the same questions that every victim of a crime confronts. And, and when you are a victim of a crime, it doesn't matter whether your bicycle is stolen or something worse has happened to you. You ask yourself, I think, two questions. The first is, who did this? And the second is, how can I hold somebody accountable? Now, if 
if we are victims of crime here in America, we have we have fairly uh, understandable ways of dealing with those questions. We call the police or we call the FBI, for example. If you are the victim of a terror attack, there's no prescribed way of responding to that. Um, do you call the military? Do you call the FBI? Do you call the local police? Or in this case, I found these families were left with only one uh, uh, uh uh, resort, and that was to go to court and file lawsuits against the Islamic Republic of Iran, who they were able to prove not only financed this particular bombing on Jaffa Road, but also trained the bomb maker. What this goes to the heart of is a discussion that we had, even as a country, in the wake of 9-11, which is how do you deal with this kind of terrorism? Do you deal with it in a geopolitical sense, which is kind of what we did, or do you deal Correct. with it in many ways the way the British government dealt with the troubles, which is more as a law enforcement issue to try and take the charge off some of the politics of it? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question you asked. Our country really hasn't come to that conclusion yet as to what is the best way to deal with this. I mean, the story that I trace in the mid-1990s was really a, a, a story that, 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 that really brought that question to the forefront in that, it, you know, as, as we recall in, in, in the 1990s, there had been a, a real uptick in terrorist activity uh, beginning in the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. I mean, we had Pan Am 103. That was a massive terrorist attack against our country. And then there were these other bombings that took place all over the Middle East, largely the work of Islamic radicals uh, in which Americans were getting killed here and there, that sort of thing. The last thing that our that our federal government wanted to do seemed to be was to have a coherent policy on how to respond to this. And even when Al Qaeda attacked our embassies in the 1990s, we didn't really respond very well. Uh, we sent a couple of cruise missiles into <laughs> and 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 didn't destroy too much besides some tents. Um, after 9/11, I think our country tried to grapple with a way to respond to terrorism, but. We still really didn't have a, a fixed idea on what, what was the best way to do this. Was the military the best way? Do we send in the Navy SEALs or the Delta Force or even a larger force of military soldiers? Or do we use the FBI, the CIA, and their assets and the Justice Department? Or, in this case, do we allow uh, private citizens to file court suits against terror, you know, uh, terrorist ba uh, banks that have funneled money through uh, to terrorists, or in the case of the story that I write about, um, to, f to file lawsuits against nations which sponsored these terrorist activities. And even today, all these years later, we haven't come to a really uh, firm decision on what is the best way. And the the method that I talk about in in in, in my book. Uh, in which these families were forced to go to court, really places them in a very, very difficult position, both constitutionally and also as individuals. I mean, when you think about the constitution of our country, it says that foreign policies, policy is in the hand of, hands of the executive branch. And when I talked to the judge, the federal judge who handled these cases, he said, you know, I'll decide these cases. But he said, I didn't feel very good about it because I don't know if judges ought to be involved in making foreign policy. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is, why should any victim of a crime have to go to court themselves mm -hmm. to try to prove who the perpetrators were and to ex extract some kind of justice? And that is, I think, a question at the heart of my book. We see that take place. I mean, there's a couple of points in all of that, but we see that take place oftentimes 
when there is a crime and perhaps the perpetrator of the crime is found innocent or not prosecuted or something like that, and there are civil opportunities that present themselves. I mean, perhaps the penultimate example is the O.J. Simpson case. The O.J. Simpson case is a, is a perfect example. But that, that, was a, that was a situation, as you may recall, where the police actually got involved. Now, they, they may not have been doing a very good job, and they made, it, they made all kinds of mistakes. But there was a criminal trial. There was right. a murder trial there. And uh, Simpson was, a, was acquitted. Then the families filed wrongful death suits. What happened in this case was the families ended up filing wrongful death suits because the FBI didn't do anything. Uh, the, the, the military certainly do, didn't do anything. The Israelis, did, the Israelis ended up catching some people and, and sending one of them to jail. In fact, the, the ringleader, and I ended up interviewing him. Um, but the families back here in the United States weren't even told that these people were caught, captured and that trials were taking place over in Israel. So they had no idea that some, some measure of justice was being served. So because, the, because Congress had gotten so fed up with the lack of, uh, you know, action by the White House, uh, and it didn't start with Bill Clinton. It started with uh, the first George Bush, and also with Reagan. He wasn't do, wasn't exactly uh, too uh, keen to get involved in chasing down terrorists uh, uh, with, with either the Justice Department or the military. And so Congress passed a law and said, you know, families can file lawsuits if they can prove that you know a certain number of nations that were considered to be state sponsors of terrorism. Uh, could prove to be involved in in, uh, in some way in these terrorist acts. In many ways, this dilemma started even earlier. If you look back to, to the late 60s, early 70s, what some have jokingly referred to as the golden age of hijacking, there were sure. all of these airplane hijackings that took place that, that the government or law enforcement, nobody ever really was sure how they would be prosecuted. I mean, the problems existed even then. Exactly. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, there's a scene in my book where I describe, you know, the, uh, the Clinton administration has a big ceremony at the White House where they sign the bill allowing families to file lawsuits. And the families that I write about walk into the White House and they sit down with this uh, with these other families who have been victims of terrorism. And one of them was the family of that Navy uh, a sailor who was killed uh, after a, a hijacking back in the mid-1980s on the tarmac at, uh, in, 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 at an airport in Beirut, Lebanon. So, uh, yes, we've had these kinds of incidents taking place for a long time, and and we, we, we as a country are still struggling with how to respond to them. There are some people who believe that you need a sort of tripod response. You need the military, you need the Justice Department, but you also have to leave open the possibility of filing lawsuits. The problem is with lawsuits is that it takes money to do those. It takes a certain amount of savvy to, you know, for people to find lawyers and that sort of thing. And when you're the victim of a terrorist attack, you're not exactly in the best position to have a clear head to you know, find the right lawyer, and, and you might not even have enough money to go ahead with a lawsuit. So that's why, what, what, why the dilemma becomes so much more painful. And what makes this all the more complicated is this notion, which is, I guess, a more modern idea. I'm not sure what the historical antecedents of it might be, but of really this kind of state-sponsored terrorism, the link between state-sponsoring and terrorism. Right. What I, what I was able to show in my book was, uh, was that the, the, the 
Islamic Republic of Iran has been routinely funneling money to Palestinians. Uh, and this has gone back to the early 1990s when there was allegedly a peace process in, at work there. You know, remember the remember the Oslo Peace Accords. Right. <laughs> uh, this particular bombing that I talk that I write about all but obliterated that. And as I show in the book, I found persuasive evidence that even Yasser Arafat, who was then the Palestinian leader, he's now dead, that Arafat had uh, had knowledge that, that some sort of an attack was going to take place. So there's all kinds of factors coming into play here. You've got the Iranians giving millions of dollars to the Palestinians, and specifically saying in the Iranian budget, and, it, and it's right there for all to see, uh, this goes to Palestinian liberation, uh, you know, activities, which is, which uh, people have been able to prove was a direct link into terrorist activities with Hamas or either or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And then from there, as if to make matters worse, the Iranians brought uh, some Hamas operatives to Iran and trained them in how to make bombs. And as if to make this story even more ironic. The explosive material that was used in this bombing on Jaffa Road in, in Jerusalem, the explosive material was extracted from landmines that were made in the United States and that were placed on the Egyptian-Israeli border. So it all comes back into this kind of circle of, 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 of evil, I guess, as you could call it, in which uh, all of these factors come together, and the end result is that innocent people are blown up on a bus. Beyond that, what it all comes back to, at the core of this is, and, and you talk about this, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And certainly it, it has grown out in much larger and uncontrollable and, and other issues involved concentric circles. But if you start to deconstruct it, if you reverse the Big Bang theory here, what the, the core, the black hole that you come back to is Israel and Palestine. That's right. And, and, and I, I really wanted, uh, that's one reason why I chose this particular bombing, because so much of the context that we, we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that we almost lose sight of the fact that so much of the killing over there, and, and I, I realize that the Israelis have done their share of, of killing of innocent people most recently in, in, in the Gaza Strip and the recent war that took place there. The vast majority of terrorist attacks, suicide bombings, and that sort of thing. Um, in fact, all of the suicide bombings. Uh, there, ha there hasn't been a single suicide attack on the part of an Israeli. But the the suicide, uh, the campaign of suicide bombings that took place from the mid 1990s into you know around 2004 was largely the work of Palestinians um, who were attacking innocent Israelis, and. When you when you talk about that in relation to war, uh, as as many people want to do, I think it, you lose sight of the fact of what really happened here. Um, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for a lot of the issues in the Palestinian cause, but I draw the line at murder, and that's exactly what was happening here. Uh, and I don't think there has been enough focus on the fact that when these attacks take place. Innocent people die. And I remember talking to the bomb maker in prison, and he was telling me, he said he considers himself a soldier. My next question to him was, well, if you are a soldier, what kind of soldier kills innocent people? And I said, in most people's eyes, that's considered a war crime. 
And he didn't want to buy, he didn't want to even address that. But that is one of the core issues that I think we lose sight of because we're constantly, you know, talking about this, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a matter of diplomacy and will it, you know, what, the, what is the impact on the peace process and stuff like that. And I think we brush aside this, the fact that, you know, in these attacks, innocent people die. And, 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 and this, is a, this is not the kind of thing that should happen in war, period. Uh, it shouldn't happen at all, period. But when you contextualize that as part of an ongoing war, I think you lose sight of the fact that innocent people have been killed here. The other part is, is what really sparks terrorism as opposed to other kinds of action. What is it that causes a movement to cross the line, whether it's the Palestinians, as you were talking about, whether it was in Northern right. Ireland? I mean, in a contemporary sense, what what is it about certain conflicts that terrorism becomes part of the repertoire? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think what's going on, at least in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is an enormous frustration on the part of the Palestinians as to uh, how that they can... Uh, uh, gain an upper hand in this conflict. And, and as I said, I think they do have some legitimate gripes. Um, I think they have bought into a strategy, however, that has really not served them well. And the strategy really has kind of evolved or uh, turned in, it's kind of turned on a, a, I think, a very dangerous theology. And that is something that I, I talk about in the book, um, which I think a lot of our leaders here in the West um, have not really focused on yet. Um, I mean, President Obama spoke at, at the United Nations a few weeks ago, and he started to talk a little bit about he wishes you know, the Muslim world would start to criticize some of these radicalized jihadists. But I, I, if, you, if you take a look at the Muslim world, there is not a lot of criticism of, of this kind of radicalized theology. Privately, a lot of Muslim scholars and theologians will tell you that it's, it's, uh, it's wrong and it's perverted, but there's not a lot of public condemnation of that. And what's happened here is that uh, some of the more radicalized elements of, of, of Hamas, for example, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hezbollah in Lebanon have bought into this theology of, number one, that you have the right to kill uh, people who do not believe or not follow your faith. We're seeing that played out now uh, in, a, in a very horrific way with what ISIS is doing mm -hmm. in Syria, in Iraq, and killing people who, who are not Muslims. That's number one. And number two, the other piece of this theology uh, is that you can be a martyr and you can be guaranteed a place in paradise if you kill yourself and other innocent people. And as I said earlier, that turns the whole notion of traditional notion of martyrdom right on its head. And I don't think people in the West have really focused hard enough on that yet and criticized it and really, really explored and, and dialed down on what exactly is going on there. And do you think that part of that comes from the fact that it's a very difficult notion for anyone in the West to get their head around? It is a difficult notion to get our heads around. I mean, most religions, the, the traditional Judeo-Christian uh, concept of martyrdom, and indeed if you look at Hinduism and Buddhism and most of the world's great religions, and even Islam itself, the, the idea of martyrdom is that you are a, you know, you are giving up your life because you uh, refuse to uh, abide by somebody else's wishes. 
the idea of killing yourself and others <laughs> because because you want to promote your own faith is completely different from that definition. And I think we have a hard time dealing with that. The second piece of this problem, however, is political. People in the West are so divided over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and many of the other issues in the in the Middle East that I don't think that they're able to deal with this kind of uh, uh, theolog- theological issue yet. It's also trying to understand what it is that, that we're dealing with. Are you dealing with the process? Are you dealing with the way this is played out politically, the way that it's played out militarily, the way that it's played out with respect to terrorism? Over the years, there are so many layers upon layers upon layers. That's part of the problem as well. Well, right. I mean, the Middle East uh, right now is is, is enormously complicated. Uh, I, I I have spent a fair amount of time over there, and I think it is at uh, it's really the at its worst right now. I I don't see any hope that there is going to be any type of peace process, certainly not in the near future. There's just been too much violence. There's too much mistrust by both sides. And, and these, as I said earlier, the Israelis have not exactly behaved well in this either. Um, even though, you know, as I said earlier, most of the terrorist violence has come from the Palestinian side. But the Israelis have, 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 have done things which have, have contributed to the animosity. Uh, that doesn't justify the killing of innocent people, but I think it's contributed to it. Uh, but the point here I'm trying to make is that I think the fissures and the divide between the Israelis and the Palestinians is so great right now, I don't see any hope in the near future that things are going to be solved. As you reported this story, as you looked back on this incident that happened twenty, approximately 20 years ago, back in 1996, Correct. when you look at the crucible of that and you interviewed the bomb maker as you did, did did you could you imagine seeing in that the the roots of everything that we've been talking about that's going on today? I could actually. That's a very good question um, because when I went in to see this bomb maker, his name is Hassan Salome. He's in jail for forty six murders, which which if he was here in the United States would make him one of our worst mass murderers. Um, it had been a number of years since the bombing itself, and I thought, well, I'm 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 curious to see if he feels any sense of remorse, because at this point in time, he had surely realized that the people he killed on that bus were innocent people. There was a, there was a, you know, a grandfather who had escaped uh, the Holocaust. There was a young couple on the on the bus who were looking for a new apartment. They left a three-month-old baby at home. There was a Palestinian woman who was going to a job. There was a whole there was a whole cross section of people on that bus, and all of those people died, and. So I, I I was looking for a hint of remorse in this guy, and I, I have to tell you, he he was a stone cold killer. He was interested in uh, trying to uh, protect himself and what he had done, and trying to convince himself that what he had done was perfectly right. And I remember asking him, I you know, trying to personalize this in a way, and asking him about the two young Americans that were killed. And in referring to the young woman who was who who died, he said, well. She just got in the way, and I thought that 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 kind of epitomizes, I think, the level of debauchery and cruelty that now exists over there when you have people who are taking other people's lives and saying, well, they just got in the way, and got in the way of what? Well, they got in the way of his cause is what they got in the way of. So there's a lot of justification and anger over this 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 conflict and a lot of justification for killing that I think is really wrong-headed. 
It's also a, I mean, the politics apart from it, it's a kind of mass sociopathy that goes on. I mean, you can see similar things. I mean, if you look at organized crime, you know, years ago in this country, you saw a similar kind of, of sociopathic attitude, this disregard even for innocent life. I agree. Uh, you know, there's, there's almost, I, I, I felt that there was a nihilistic uh, feeling on the part of this bomb maker. He was almost taking a certain amount of joy in the fact that he had killed 46 people. Uh, none of, I mean, at one point I asked him, I said, if you consider, as I said earlier, I, you, you consider yourself a soldier, but you've killed people who were not fighting against you. They were innocent people. It was almost like a kind of massacre and a war crime, the kind of thing we saw with the My Lai massacre mm-hmm, in Vietnam mm-hmm. with our own soldiers, the kinds of things that we've seen now what ISIS is doing in uh in Iraq, I mean, I don't really see a difference there. When you're when you're when you're killing innocent people, it, it strikes me as the same thing. Whether you blow them up in a in a bus or you machine gun them, uh, it's it's the same crime in my view. And yet this guy was trying to justify it in the name of God and uh, his his cause. Mike Kelly, his book is The Bus on Jaffa Road: The Story of Middle East Terrorism and the Search for Justice. It's just out from Lions Press. Mike, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.